<laughs> Wait, am I recording? You are listening to Stuff About Things, an art history podcast. All right, let's Van Gogh. Hello and welcome to Stuff About Things, an art history podcast. My name is Lindsay, and for those of you who do not know me yet, I'm getting my PhD in art history, because why not? For those of you who do know me, you might hear that my voice is a, is a bit raspy. My vocal fry might be on point today. And that is because I have already recorded this episode four different times. I kid you not, four different times. This is my fifth time recording this episode. I'm not going to go into why. Let's just say I'm not very happy with either Audacity, Yeti microphones, or Apple computers right now. I'm pissed. I am recording this episode in early June of 2020 in the wake of the killing of George Floyd by a police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I had been planning to record an episode this past week. It's researched, it's written, it's ready to be recorded. That episode is about privileged white male artists. My last episode was about privileged white male artists. Many of my episodes, not all of them, but many of them, are about white, privileged, male artists. Given the state of things right now, I do not want to sit down and talk about privileged white male artists. And I sure as heck don't want to listen to my own voice talk about them for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours when I edit the podcast down. When I shelved the episode that I had ready to go to be recorded, I went back to my original topics list that I drafted two years ago, and I had an aha moment. And not not one like, aha! The aha moment was a bit more like, aha! Kind of sound, because I think this episode is probably one of the most important ones that I've done thus far, especially because it's happening right now. I'm not going to say everything right. I'm not going to say everything perfect. There are parts of this episode that lay bare my privilege and my past and present ignorances. I am aware of that, and I am okay with that. So long as you leave this episode with what I hope is new knowledge, but at the very least is an understanding of why I appreciate and admire this artist and his work, and why what he does is important for the world of art history. That is my goal. With that said... This is the part where I tell you stuff about an artist and the things that he is doing to make the world of art history a more inclusive space for people of color. Kehende Wiley and his magnificent portraits of power. Right away at the top of the episode, I want to give a massive shout out to the media that I have been consuming this week. I mean, this week I went into turbo mode. When I was on my walks, I was listening to podcasts about Kehinde Wiley. When I was making dinner, I was watching YouTube interviews with him. Like, in my one-person apartment, it has been Kehinde Wiley week. 
The first thing that I want to recommend to you is to go and watch the 2018 lecture that Kehende Wiley gave at the St. Louis Art Museum. It's over an hour long, I think, and it has awesome information in the words of the artist himself. On that same wavelength, I would also recommend that you go listen to the episode of The Ture Show, which is a podcast that features Ture, the show's host, talking with Kehende Wiley, who is a personal friend of his. So not only do you hear Kehende Wiley talking about his work in his own words, but doing so with a friend, which slightly changes, slightly changes the, the dynamic of the conversation. I also recommend the shorter episode of the We Live Here podcast, which shout out to them because they're based in St. Louis too. They have a special episode that contains about a 15 minute interview segment with Kehende Wiley. So I mean, that would be perfect. If you go listen to that first, come back here, and then afterwards you can watch the lecture and the Ture show, and you can have a foundation on which to build. And of course, of course, of course, of course, I will post all of this stuff on the podcast's website, which is stuffaboutthingspodcast.com. Set in my sources. Kehende Wiley is one of my favorite artists. When I go to a museum that I know has one of his works on display, I will go out of my way to seek out that painting first so that I can stand in front of it for as long as I want until my brain turns to jelly and my eyes start seeing spots. I'm not saying that I know everything about him. Please, up until five years ago, I had no idea who he was, but that's not the point. This show is about exploration not about expertise. That's what I tell myself so that I don't have a breakdown every time I hit the post button. Those of you who have listened to the podcast before and have listened to all the episodes will know that I love, 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 love Felix Gonzalez Torres and his work. I think that Kehende Wiley for me is the perfect complement to Felix Gonzalez Torres. As I talked about in the episode on Felix Gonzalez Torres, I find his work very visually challenging. It took me a long time to look at a pile of candy on the floor or clocks on the wall and understand how that could be art. And then when I learned about the substance of the stuff, of why he was doing things that way, it hit me on a profoundly personal note. With Gehende Wiley's work, I understand the visual components. The visual aspects of his work speak to me because I speak that language as a student of art history. That familiarity, though, is the entry point to a facet of culture that is largely unfamiliar to me or was in my formative years. It wasn't until I moved to Boston and Madison for college and St. Louis for grad school that I was in actively diverse environments. And it was eye-opening for me because I didn't grow up with that. For those of you who don't know, I'm from small town Wisconsin, okay? That should give you some background on this. Both Felix Gonzalez Torres and Kehende Wiley's work present me with the opportunity to learn about and think about and challenge my own perspectives about what art is, what it looks like, and what it has the potential to be, albeit in hugely different ways. But then I get to dive in, I get to enjoy it, I get to learn about it, I get to do all of the things that I love to do. Speaking of diving in, let's go. Kehende Wiley is quite a famous contemporary artist. 
He is hugely successful, both from a commercial standpoint, as well as from the perspective of affecting change in the way that we think about arts and art history. I'm going to drop a little art history lingo on you here, which is the word canon. When art history people talk about a canon or a canonical painting, we are talking about Western Art History 101. We are talking about the paintings that you would see in a coffee book of Renaissance and Baroque art. We are talking about Van Gogh and Michelangelo and Da Vinci and Picasso and all of those names that comprise the quote-unquote usual art history suspects. And to be clear, I'm talking about Western art history, so art history of Europe and North America for the most part. Gehende Wiley has made his career and his name by adapting canonical European paintings, specifically portraits, but doing so in a way that celebrates individuals and faces and identities that are largely omitted from art history. For Kehende Wiley, that means painting people who look like him into the traditions of art history. That is the driving force in Kehende Wiley's work, be it paintings, be it stained glass, be it sculpture, Everything that he does has that in common. In doing that, in inserting black and brown bodies into spaces of power, Gehende Wiley both strongly critiques art history and its lack of diversity, but he also honors it, even as he demands that space be made for those who have been systematically and categorically denied a place in that history. And when I say demand a place, I mean these things are huge. If you ever Google a Kehende Wiley work, always try to find an image of it in the gallery space or in in whatever space it's in because it'll give you an idea of how freaking big some of these things are. They're huge. So let's talk about Mr. Kehende Wiley. Kehende Wiley was born in 1977 in Los Angeles, California. As if you didn't know where Los Angeles was, it's in California. In the lecture that he gave at the St. Louis Art Museum, Kehende Wiley attributes his early interest in art to his mom. And there is this lovely moment in that lecture where he has his mom stand up in the crowd and she gets probably like a 15 second ovation. It's awesome. Let's play the clip. This is from the 2018 artists talk that Kehende Wiley gave at the St. Louis Art Museum. Tonight I'd like to give honor to my mother who's here in the room tonight, and uh, he's coming through there. Gehenne Wiley's mom enrolled both him and his twin brother in after-school arts programs when those still existed. And she did that in order to give them a place to go after school that wasn't the streets. That early exposure to art informed the rest of Gehende Wiley's education and career. He earned his BFA, his Bachelor's of Fine Arts, which essentially means he majored in studio art rather than like what I do, which is studying art, at the San Francisco Institute of Art before going on to pursue a Master's of Fine Arts at Yale University which has one of the most competitive MFA programs in the world. It was at Yale that Kehende Wiley laid the foundations for the rest of his career. 
that was the time in which he started to crystallize not just a stylistic approach to art, but the ideas that he wanted to most readily engage with in his art. I've only seen a few paintings from his years at Yale. They're the ones that he features in that St. Louis lecture in 2018. But it's very clear from the ones that I saw that they are the early, early expressions of the style that he would later develop. After receiving his MFA from Yale, Kehende Wiley won a very prestigious spot as an artist-in-residence at the Studio Museum in Harlem, New York, which proved to be a transformative opportunity for him. The residency that he held, and that continues to be in place today, you can still apply to this residency, was created with the aim of not only giving studio space to, but also supporting young emerging African and Afro-Latinx artists. And in doing so, honors the history of Harlem as a cultural capital for the African-American community. For those of you who don't know the history of Harlem, allow me to give you a very brief history lesson. Professor Sheedy is in the house. That's my last name. It's not an adjective. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the vast, vast, vast majority of African-American people in the United States lived in the South. I'll give you three guesses why. No, I'm just kidding. That population density was directly related to the United States's, and particularly the South's, potent history of slavery. In the wake of the Civil War's completion in 1865 and the subsequent abolishment of slavery, the South remained a very hostile environment for African-American people. I'm sure that the North wasn't awesome either, but at least it was better. There weren't Jim Crow laws, for example, that would stop a Black person from drinking out of the same water fountain as a white person. But those laws were still very much active in the South. So what you get is a huge portion of the African-American population moving out of, fleeing, if you will, the South. That's why it's known as the Great Migration. And Harlem was one of the very popular destinations where African-American people moved. Previously to that, Harlem, which is a neighborhood in New York, was predominantly Italian and Jewish. But after 1910 or so, it became a predominantly African-American neighborhood. In the decades that followed, Harlem experienced a golden age that we now call the Harlem Renaissance. Renaissance referring back to, you know, one of the greatest periods of culture in the Western world, but also a word that means rebirth. There was a rebirth of culture in Harlem during these decades. The neighborhood became a haven for Black artists and writers and intellectuals. It was a laboratory in which culture was both honored and forged. After the Great Depression hit, uh, things got very depressing, as, you know, the name suggests. And that golden age did fade, but it left its mark nonetheless. There were still the memories and the ideas that the Harlem Renaissance left behind that to this day permeate the neighborhood. That's the place where Kehende Wiley lived and worked and continued to explore his craft. I don't believe that Kehende Wiley's work would be what it is today without that period in Harlem. He even talks about, um, it's very cool, he talks about how different it was as an environment. 
It was different than LA. It was different than San Francisco. And it was was sure as hell different from New Haven, where he went to Yale. He recalls people peacocking, that's the word he uses, peacocking through the streets in clothes that blurred the line between clothing and costume, between performance and proud identity. Harlem was also the backdrop for a chance moment that impacted and informed Kehende Wiley's arts in a major way. I'm talking tectonic plates shifting, major kind of way. He tells the story of how he was walking down the sidewalk in Harlem one day, and he found the discarded mugshot of a young black man. And in finding that mugshot, he started to think about portraiture. Because mugshots are indeed portraits. They are images of people intended to capture identity in some way, shape, or form. They are also probably like the least, the least desirable portrait you could ever think of that I hope to never have one made, but uh, they're portraits nonetheless. In that moment, Kehende Wiley started thinking not only about chance encounters, like the one that brought him into contact with this mugshot, but also portraiture and the ways in which portraiture has been utilized in the past to depict power. Historically speaking, portraits are power. They symbolized something. They were highly thought out and planned and altered and propagandistic. They're also one of the most common types of arts within art history. Portraits are everywhere. I honestly don't really understand the people who can study portraiture within Western art history because I think it's super boring. It's lots of white people and lots of clothes, lots of symbols. It's kind of boring. In what will hopefully surprise no one... Art history is very white. Or again, I should say Western art history is very white. Up until about 100 years ago, it was pretty damn rare to see artists who were women, to see artists who were black, to see artists who were openly gay, let alone to see an artist at the intersection of those identities. There are, of course, always exceptions to the rule, but they are indeed exceptions. Art history is largely very white, very male, typically heterosexual. Art history programs around the country have largely acknowledged that their survey art history courses, their art history 101 courses, are horrifically lacking in diversity. I would also say, though, that very few art history programs have actively taken constructive steps to push back against that. One of the universities that has is Yale, Kehende Wiley's alma mater. The fact that art history is dominated by white artists has nothing to do with talent. That is the very weak, deeply racist and sexist suggestion that is often made. The reason why art history looks the way that it does demographically is because the frameworks were not in place to allow other types of people to succeed. In all of his works... Kehende Wiley makes space in art history for those who have been systematically and categorically denied a place within it. He makes space for individuals that look like him. The portraits that he makes, though, do more than inject Black personhood into art history. It clothes those individuals in the guise of power. Because that's what portraits are. They are emblems of power. They are personifications of power. Kehene Wiley claims that power for the subjects of his portraits, 
Subjects that he literally found by walking through the streets. Kind of like humans of New York. He'd walk through the streets of, of Harlem with his camera. He'd find someone who intrigued him. He'd ask if he could take their picture. And then he would use those images that he took to construct and paint images back in his studio. So when I say that individuals in Kehende Wiley portraits look like people you'd see walking down the street, it's because they are. The best known of his works until just a couple of years ago was arguably a 2005 painting entitled Napoleon Leading the Army Over the Alps. As you can probably tell from the title, this painting reimagines a very famous portrait of Napoleon on the back of a rearing horse. I believe the original is by Jacques-Louis David, but there are a couple copies. Anywho, the original portrait of Napoleon is one of those that you see so often that you actually start to associate it with the event depicted. You start to think that the event looked like the portrait, when rationally, you know that that's not true. Like, portraits were the original Photoshop. You know that Napoleon did not look that fresh and glowing and clean as he rode a horse through the Alps. It is cold there, it is snowy, it is rough, they're probably sleeping on the ground, but that's the beauty of a portrait, is that you can make it look like whatever you want. If you want to show yourself in a fancy mustard-colored cape, you are free to do so. Also, the horse is huge. Horses are not that big in real life. I suppose Napoleon was, like, what, like five and a half feet tall, but even so... That horse is huge. Back in the day, back in the 16th through the 18th centuries, and I suppose also in Roman and Greek times as well, portraits on horseback were literally their own category. It's called equestrian portraiture. That is the portrait that serves as the point of reference for Gehende Wiley's 2005 painting. When I was listening to the Ture show, which I mentioned at the top of the episode, Ture used language that I thought was very effective in describing what Kehende Wiley does with these portraits from art history. He remixes them. We all know what a remix is. You've got the original song, and then you've got the remix, which usually has this really intense, like, do, 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 do beat, and then they do that thing that DJs do at the club, where they do the wicka 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 with the the records and all the buttons and the slides and all that stuff, and then usually like Pitbull will come on and rap a verse, and you'll be like, where'd he come from? Can you tell I'm white? (laughs) That is what effectively, more or less, Kehende Wiley does with these portraits that he creates. For the 2005 Napoleon leading the army over the Alps, Kehende Wiley started by casting a young black man in the position of Napoleon. I think the guy's name was Williams. That's written in the foreground of the work. I think his name was Williams. Whom Kehende found in, I think it's the streets of Harlem. I could have the city wrong, but he found him in his usual way of walking through the streets, seeing someone, taking their picture, and then painting them into these portraits. Williams is atop this rearing horse, crowned in a white bandana a la Tupac, wearing camouflage from head to toe, accented with red starter sweatbands on his wrist, 
Timbaland's on his feet, and a fancy-ass sword at his hip. He then has this incredible mustard-colored cape that at once complements the whole look, but also adds a sense of dissonance. Because minus the cape, this is actually someone who you would see walking through the streets of Harlem. But then you add this magnificent cloak, which is not something that you tend to see these days. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe in Harlem, I don't know. But if I saw someone walking down the street wearing this kind of cloak, I'd assume there was a Dungeons and Dragons party happening somewhere, and I'd walk in the opposite direction. But in this setting, the cloak is a symbol of power. It frames the man. It allows him to occupy more space. It imbues him with importance. Gehenna Wiley literally cloaks his sitter in the symbolism of power. A power that is largely still denied to black men to this day, obviously. Just look out and see what's happening in our cities. When I was looking at this portrait, which I had known about before this week, of course, it's one of his more famous ones, but I kept looking at the sword at the guy's hip. Because within the realm of the painting, the sword completely fits. You've got the cape, you got the horse, you got the sword, like it all fits. But I was thinking that if this man were to walk out of the space of the portraits and into the street, that sword at his hip, the symbolism of what that represents, would turn to ash. It's almost as if, and probably is, I don't, I'm not sure, that's why I'm cloaking it. <laughs> cloaking, I didn't even intend that pun, but that's why I'm cloaking it in this language. I'm not positive. It's as if Gehende Wiley knows that the raw assertion of power in the language of the European tradition is safe within the realm of these paintings. And maybe this is the only safe space for them to embrace these acts of defiant power, of confidently claiming something that was so often denied to them. And I say that because a white man can stand on the steps of the Michigan Capitol building with a very real automatic rifle, demanding a haircut, and go home at night no problem, while a young black boy with a toy gun gets shot to death at a park. I am, of course, referring to Tamir Rice. There is also an element in Kahende Wiley's work that he talks about very often, which is exploring the concept of black masculinity. Obviously, that is a topic that I don't know much about. I did, however, read a very beautifully written, quite brief commentary on that topic by Hanu Amenda, which he wrote in 2018. It's, it's entitled, A Visual Revamping of Black Masculinity, which I'm going to quote here. Quote, What images do you associate with black masculinity? Over the years, Gehende Wiley's portraits of black males have poked holes in the most popular and negative stereotypes. He painted portraits of black men standing proud in royal postures against flamboyant, vivid, and mostly floral backdrops. He countered the images of black gangsters with that of the urban black knight on horseback. Elsewhere, one of his modern characters is proudly posing with his sword down, unlike the ultra-aggressive male portrayed in the outlets of pop culture. He later evolved to include portraits of women. However, what the African-American artist Kehende Wiley is renowned for is his magisterial depiction of black males who are more than the sum of the stereotypes playing against them. End quote. 
the images of black men that Kehende Wiley paints don't look like the ones that we're used to seeing. And they sure as heck don't look like what we're used to seeing within the realm of the art museum. In the realm of Western art history, individuals of color are almost exclusively depicted as slaves, as servants, and as things to be ogled at, as exoticisms. What must it be like to walk into a museum and not see yourself on the wall, or to see yourself depicted in these degrading positions, and instead see a painting like the Napoleon crossing the Alps? What must that be like? That must be incredible. One of my favorite things about Kehende Wiley works is the colors and the patterns that he so often uses in the background of his portraits. For the painting of Napoleon leading the army crossing the Alps, the background is this rich crimson red with golden damask print that evokes excess and richness and wealth. It reminds me of wallpaper you'd see at Versailles. And yet these backdrops, they're not wallpaper. They're not static things. The patterns tend to overlap the subjects in his paintings, like some kind of gorgeous invasive weed taking over. It is decadent and in your face and over the top, and it demands that you look. I can think of no better place that that was represented in full force than the 2018 exhibition at the St. Louis Art Museum. For that exhibition, Kehende Wiley produced 11 new paintings that he painted using subjects taken from the streets of St. Louis and Ferguson, which of course is the city just outside of St. Louis that unfortunately is best known as the site of Mike Brown's murder in 2014. This exhibition was something of a game changer for me. It's, it's the moment that I really became invested in Kehende Wiley's work in a different way than I had been in the past. There was an aspect of familiarity to it, not just because I knew the space of the St. Louis Art Museum, I knew the curator, Simon Kelly, I know him, and one of the sitters for one of those 11 portraits was a Wash U student. Her name is Yvonne. She's now a badass artist in her own right. And I saw her on campus all of the time. But in addition to it being a familiar space, I had never seen more than one Kehende Wiley work at a time. Like usually when I would go and seek out his paintings, they would be on the walls by themselves or surrounded by works not by him. Whereas for this exhibition, they were all occupying the same space. I'm trying to think. I don't think there were any paintings between them. It was just these paintings. I will never forget walking into that exhibition hall for the first time. When I entered the exhibition hall, I was walking with a stranger. It was this woman who I did not know. I had not talked to her. She was a complete stranger to me. And we both walked into the exhibition hall at the same time. And we both made the weirdest noises that I would try to replicate into the microphone. But every time I do, it sounds obscene. The noise was, it was somewhere between a gasp but also as if our lungs were spasming. It wasn't cute, but that was our split-second reaction. We both stopped in our tracks, we both made these really weird noises, and then we both turned to look at each other. It was like this synchronized motion. And she looked me in the eye, and without knowing me, without saying hello, without anything, 
all she said was, this is art. This is what art is supposed to do. And then she walked away. <laughs> like, I kind of wanted to talk to her more, but she, she, had, she had places to be. The reason that we had that reaction was because seeing these works in this space all together made the environment pulse. It made it vibrate. It, it was a psychedelic moment. The closest analogy that I can come up with to explain what Kehende Wiley backgrounds sort of look like in real life is if you think back to the, the kind of visual game that you would play as a child, where you'd have this sheet of paper that just was covered in a kaleidoscope of color, and you'd put it really close to your face, and then as you pulled it away from your face, your eyes focused in a different way, and you saw an image popping out at you from that kaleidoscope of color. It'd usually be a lion or, I don't know, a face or something like that. But if you blinked, you lost it. And then you had to start all over again. Probably why my eyes are so freaking bad because I just stared at those things as a kid. The Kehende Wiley backgrounds of the St. Louis portraits gave me that same sense of oscillation. That push and pull between seeing shape versus seeing a mishmash of color. And the exhibition remains one of my favorite exhibitions that I've ever seen, because as I've said on this podcast before, I don't tend to have big reactions to art, even the really famous stuff. I can really appreciate it, I find it very special, but I rarely have that gut-stomach reaction. And I pay attention when I do. And that's what those portraits did that day at the St. Louis Art Museum. The St. Louis Art Museum, SLAM, as the insiders call it, ended up buying one of those portraits. I don't know what happened to the other ones, but SLAM bought at least one of them. They paid $200,000 for it, which I was actually quite surprised by. It seemed like a bargain to me because I just assumed Kehinde Wiley's work went for a lot more. Maybe they got a discount. I don't know. The St. Louis Art Museum bought this portrait... Because the point of reference that Kehinde Wiley used is one from Slam's collection. It's a very uh, well-known, within the realm of the museum, it's a very well-known painting of Charles I by Daniel Mitens. In this portrait of Charles I, the king has his hand on his hip. He's got this super flouncy hat with all of these feathers in it. Buckled shoes, and he's doing like a little pose. He's doing it. To present-day perspectives, he's doing a lot. Like, he's doing too much. But he's the king, and that was the height of masculinity in 1633. In Kehinde Wiley's reimagining of the painting, he cast a St. Louis individual, technically I think she's from Wellston, named Ashley Cooper. And in this portrait, Ashley Cooper stands tall and proud, well over life-size, with her hand on her hip, her flip-flops on her feet, wearing a very simple camouflage t-shirt dress. She is surrounded by one of the most intense backgrounds. I don't know about the most intense, but one of my favorite for sure. It's this background of blue, orange, and red flowers with these green stems on a black background. Much like the portrait of Napoleon from 2005, these flowers don't just stay relegated to the background, but they start to overflow with Ashley. They start to wind up her body. There's a wreath of flowers that sort of come up behind her head, crowning her, 
And it's one of the most beautiful things because despite all of that going on, despite being surrounded by this very loud floral background, Ashley Cooper is not there to be upstaged. She is there to be seen. This push and pull between someone standing in flip-flops and a camo dress versus this overwhelming or at least potentially overwhelming background creates this magnificent effect. It's a person of color, a woman of color, who is occupying the place of a king and outshining a spectacular background in nothing more than her day clothes. It is so cool. While these types of portraits, the portrait of Ashley Cooper as Charles I and the portrait of Napoleon crossing the Alps, that's the style and the kind of work for which Kehende Wiley is best known. But he also engages in other media and other styles. Some of his most powerful works, in my opinion, are the ones that he renders in stained glass. The portraits show individuals of color inhabiting the realm of power. But the stained glass works are powerful for another reason. There's one in particular called The Lamentation, which shows a black man holding a dead child in his arms. It clearly is referencing a Pieta, much like a a Michelangelo statue, in which the Madonna holds the body of a dead Jesus Christ. That's the reference. And seeing it in stained glass, it adds a sort of fragility to the image. And yet it glows, it glistens, it casts light into space. I mean, the whole thing is beautiful. It's as beautiful as it is heartbreaking. And when I look at that work, I'm reminded of how easy it is to look at images like that, historically speaking. Like, if you show me a Madonna and child, I will be moved by it, but I don't have the same reaction to it that I have to the Kehende Wiley version. That might be because I've become desensitized to the art historical images that I've seen fossilized in the pages of art history books. The image within the Lamentation by Kehende Wiley is not a fossilized thing. It's not an image of loss embodied through symbolism. It's real. And the aesthetic, the visual beauty of that makes it hurt all the more. It's like salt in a wound. And yet the man who holds the dead child, he does it with this defiant possession. No one is going to take that child away from him more than they already have. I've been seeing that image over and over and over again in the past week for the obvious reasons. And it reinforces the already disturbing aspects of the image. The fact that so many people have had the experience of that man in the stained glass and of that child in the stained glass. And that is unacceptable. Before I sat down for this week's episode to to research it and all that jazz, I didn't realize that Kehende Wiley was also a sculptor. Probably his best known sculpture is a more recently made one entitled Rumors of War. Kehende Wiley produced this sculpture for the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in 2019. In the same vein as his paintings and his stained glass works, Rumors of War has a precedent. It has a point of reference, which is the bronze equestrian portrait of Confederate General James Ewell Brown. Many of you will recall that in the past two or three years, there have been ongoing conversations about the place of Confederate sculpture and Confederate monuments within the United States. 
and things have been torn down. There have been protests. There have been counter-protests. It's been a massive conversation. I mean, hell, this week, people in England have just torn down a statue of a slave owner. So also this conversation expands beyond the U.S. It expands beyond Confederate statues to look at a broader problem, a broader issue in our world. In Kehene Wiley's sculpture, the person on the back of the horseback is not a Confederate general. No surprise there. But rather a young black man wearing street clothes. They are clothes that all of us own, well, most of us own, and that most of us wear. Ripped jeans, sneakers, and a hoodie. They are also clothes, especially the hoodie, that have been intimately linked with violence and mistrust against black men within the U.S., also within the UK, but I know it best within the context of the US. Specifically, seeing this individual in a hoodie made me think of Trayvon Martin, the young black man who was shot and murdered. And the gray hoodie that Trayvon was wearing when he died became a central aspect of the protests that followed his murder. And it made me once again think about how clothing is coded how the way that we dress our bodies is coded a certain way, and for certain people, those codes are different. Much like protesters did in the wake of Trayvon Martin's death, Kehende Wiley's sculpture turns the hoodie not into something coded for violence, but into a uniform of power. This young black man riding atop this horse is power personified. His chest is puffed, he looks defiantly out. He has full control over that horse. He is, he is power. And not to keep, not to keep, <laughs> I was going to say beating a dead horse, but again, look at me with all these puns. I am so tired I've recorded this five times. Anywho, when I looked at Rumors of War by Kehende Wiley, I was reminded of images that I saw coming out of Houston this week in which a group of, of black men who participate in a horse club, it's called um, Nonstop Riders, they protested in the streets of Houston on horseback. And seeing the images and seeing the video of them riding through the streets of Houston, I saw that in the Kehende Wiley sculpture. There's a similar aspect of defiance in those individuals as there was in bronze. And yet the stakes are higher because... Nothing can really hurt a body in bronze. Yes, it can be torn down. Yes, it can be melted down. But it can't be caused pain. Its heart won't stop beating. Its lungs don't have to breathe. That body is safe. But someone like Trayvon Martin couldn't say the same. And now as I'm talking, I, I didn't actually think about this the, the four other times that I've recorded this, but the sculpture that Rumors of War takes as its point of reference, that the, the sculpture of the Confederate general... What's his name? James Ewell Brown. James Ewell Brown died in the Civil War, and yet he was embodied and allowed to live on in this state of pride after the fact via this bronze sculpture. And I don't know what analogy I'm trying to draw here, but like we were talking about with portraits of power in the Napoleon, portraits, they allow you to paint yourself into power. And over time... You come to accept that power, and viewers come to accept that power. We assume that because it's embodied, it must be true. And I hope that someday we can look at rumors of war and assume that it embodies truth, not only in the abstract, not only in the sense of the spirit, but also in the literal. 
Speaking of embodied power, Candy Wiley has reached his apogee of power. He has reached the peak of his power, arguably, within the past two years. Specifically in 2018, when he was selected to paint the presidential portrait of former President Barack Obama. In his, in his interview with Ture, Kahende Wiley talks about being called to interview for something at the White House, but he didn't really know what it was until he got the call that he had been selected for this massive honor. He also talks about the conversations that he had with Obama as they devised what he wanted to look like in this portrait. And it's interesting because the portrait of Obama is essentially antithetical. It's the opposite of what Kehinde Wiley became so well known for. Because Barack Obama is power. He was one of, and I would argue continues to be, one of the most powerful men in the world, albeit in slightly different ways now that he's out of office. Barack Obama does not need to occupy the poses of power because he is power. The resulting portrait is one of Kehinde Wiley's more subdued portraits, and it displays a different kind of power. I would highly encourage you go find the YouTube video, I will post it on the website, in which it's, it's the moment in which this portrait is unveiled. And there is this like frisson, this, this wave that goes through the room as this portrait is unveiled. The portrait shows Obama, a man of immense power, sitting in an antique chair with his elbows on his knees. And he is surrounded by this lush green plant life that's blossoming with flowers, all of which were chosen to pay homage to Barack Obama's background and his origins. The painting still pulses with life, just like any other Kehinde Wiley portrait does. And it still pulses with power. But it's very clear that this powerful man doesn't need a cocked hip. He doesn't need a big hat or a horse or a sword. He embodies power simply by being embodied. And Kehinde Wiley captures that beautifully. It's that portrait that made Kehinde Wiley the first African-American artist to paint the portrait of a sitting president, which is pretty damn cool. Also, shout out to Amy Sherald for her portrait of Michelle Obama, which is also freaking amazing. I don't know if you can tell from the tone I'm taking in this episode, but I miss the Obamas so much. Come back. Come back. Like any public figure and artist who pushes the boundaries, Kehinde Wiley is not without his controversies. His controversies, if you will. At least so-called. I personally don't think these are that big of a deal, but hey, we'll talk about them. The first of these is something that I was aware of when I started writing this episode, which is that Kehinde Wiley often employs studio assistants to help him paint his canvases. These assistants are largely responsible for executing the backgrounds. That point, that fact that they do indeed do this, has become used as a way of discrediting Kehinde Wiley's work. I know that because I was, not recently, like two years ago probably, I was having a conversation with an acquaintance that I know through school. And I must, we must have been talking about Kehinde Wiley. Who knows what I was saying? Because, you know, at that point I didn't know a whole lot. But I remember this acquaintance saying something like, yeah, but his studio assistants paint a good part of his work. So, like, why are you so excited about him? To which I say, 
Maybe it's because I study the Renaissance and the Baroque periods, but I think it's 100% totally fine that studio assistants help him paint the backgrounds. What is wrong with that? That is what all of the white painters did in Europe over the course of centuries. Also, Kehende Wiley's paintings are huge. Have I made that clear? They're massive. Of course he's going to use assistance to help him. Why would he spend all of the time doing that when he could be painting another portrait? But people still have their panties in a twist about that particular aspect of Kehende Wiley's work. I personally think it's the classic case of someone who gets too successful, becomes a media darling, and then people need a reason to cut that success down. People start policing that success. The other, arguably bigger, controversy is the series of portraits that Gehende Wiley produced that depict a black woman in the role of Judith from the biblical story of Judith and Holofernes. The story of Judith and Holofernes is from the Old Testament, and it tells the story of Judith, who is a Jewish woman, whose people are under threat from the Assyrian army. In the dead of night, Judith sneaks into the enemy camp, I don't know, somehow gets in the Assyrian general's tent, gets him shwasted, and then seduces him only to then cut his head off. That's the story. It is one of the most popular biblical stories that you see in paintings, specifically those from the Renaissance and Baroque periods. It's very, very common. In those paintings, it usually depicts Judith in one of two ways. Usually she's in the act of beheading Holofernes or carrying his head in the aftermath. Kehende Wiley painted the latter. He painted uh, a black woman holding the head of, I think it's a white woman, but I don't know. Some, some guys have long hair these days, you never know. But it's a black person holding the head of a white person. Hmm, I wonder why that caused controversy. Not. I understand that people might be upset at images like that, especially if they don't know the source material. I understand that we no longer live in the Renaissance. I get that. Times are different. However, there is more at play here. In art history writing, very few people ever write about images of Judith and Holofernes as threatening, as obscene, as um, encouragements of violence. Those paintings are never talked about like that. Instead, the analysis typically focuses on Judith as an emblem of faith as someone who put everything on the line in order to help her people, of violence for the sake of good. What's more, in feminist takes on the scene, Judith becomes an emblem of feminine rage. She becomes a heroine in a revenge plot against powerful men. But when you change the color of her skin, when you make Judith black and Holofernes white, or maybe even a woman, the images are no longer perceived that way. It's perceived as a threat. To be fair, the paintings are disturbing, but I find them disturbing because there's these colors of this vibrant blue and pastel mixed in with not the promise of violence because the violence has already occurred, but the, the outcome of violence. Those two things merge and it creates a dissonance. I don't think everyone sees them that way. It was instead read as a threat, as an aggression, as an unacceptable crossing of boundaries. Images have power, yes. Images can incite violence, they can incite rage, yes. 
But ultimately, it's more constructive to ask why some people were more outraged by the oil and canvas depictions of interracial violence than the interracial violence actually happening in the streets. Oil on canvas will not hurt anyone. Putting your knee on someone's neck in the street will. Instead of clutching our pearls, we should instead be concerned with things that actually matter. And I would bet you a million dollars, and I'm obviously I'm making this bet rhetorically because I have no money, but I would bet you a million non-existent dollars that Gehenna Wiley was fully aware of all of this when he painted these portraits. For heaven's sakes, on the homepage of his website, there's a, there's a photograph of him standing in front of one of those paintings. Like, he knows exactly what he was doing. From the conversations and speeches that Kehinde Wiley has given, you know that he knows stuff. You know that he's got dirt. There is no other artist who I would rather sit down with, with a glass or five of wine, and just shoot the shit. Just hear all of his gossip. I want to hear all of the backstories. I want to hear more about the Michael Jackson story. I want to hear about the alleged Kanye West sketches that are out there. Like, I want to hear about all of it. Kehende, if you're listening, <laughs> if you're listening, you should probably go do something more worth your time. But if you're listening and you want some $7 Trader Joe's wine, you let me know. To close the episode, I want to talk about the first Gehende Wiley portrait that I ever saw. And in doing so, leave you with some reflections on how Gehende Wiley's work in making space for people of color in institutions of arts also permeates other boundaries. In 2005, Gehende Wiley was commissioned by VH1 to paint a series of portraits for that year's cohort of the Hip Hop Honors Program. His sitters included Ice-T, LL Cool J, and Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. How cool would it be to be commissioned for those? His portrait of LL Cool J was the first Kehinde Wiley portrait that I ever saw in person. I think I was a grad student at that time. I think I was like a baby grad student, but it was really, really early in grad school that I saw it. Whenever it was, it was before I knew anything about Kehinde Wiley. It's before I even heard of him. It was the first time that I had ever been to the National Portrait Gallery, and to be honest, I was not terribly excited to be there because I just assumed it'd be super boring. But I remember walking around this corner and just stopping in my tracks, not only because I was very surprised to see someone I recognized on the wall, other than, you know, the, the guys who cover my dollar bills, but also because the colors in this portrait are downright garish. And I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way, but I also don't necessarily mean it in a good way. The colors are so intense that it almost makes you feel dizzy. It's this bright, bright neon lime mixed with bright orangey red in a pattern that's something like a cross between Baroque wallpaper and a Rorschach test. It's a lot. And then you have LL Cool J, who, by the way, is several times bigger than life size, who is sitting in front of this oscillating background in a beautiful white suit and a baseball cap sitting in an antique chair. And I'm not sure that I liked the portrait. Now I do. But back then, I'm pretty sure I just thought it was super weird. 
But looking back on that first visit to the National Portrait Gallery, I spent like five hours there. I know that I saw virtually all of the portraits there. But the Kehende Wiley portrait of LL Cool J is the only painting that I remember seeing on that visit. If there were any painting that I had to choose to stand in front of with my brothers, who tormented me growing up, I would choose the portrait of LL Cool J by Kehende Wiley. I am an art history PhD student. I did not grow up going to art museums. That was, number one, not something my family really did, but number two, Green Bay, Wisconsin does not have an art museum. Hip-hop and R&B were way more common in our home than great art. Did we understand what we were listening to? No, but we enjoyed it. We danced to it, we rapped to it, we sang to it. We looked forward to going to Best Buy to purchase CDs and cassettes. I mean, hell, TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool was the first music that I ever owned, and I owned it on cassette tape. I would choose to stand in front of LL Cool J's portrait by Kehende Wiley because I think that the most satisfying conversations that we can have over art are not the ones in which we are called upon to demonstrate our knowledge or to lecture someone else, but ones in which you can engage in an actual conversation. One about memories, about the state of things in the world, about what you like and you don't like about the work of art without fearing coming across as stupid. I could see myself easily standing in front of that Kehende Wiley portrait with Ted, Tyler, and Todd. Yes, my brother's names are Ted, Tyler, and Todd. I'm not kidding about that. That's their actual names. Oh, why weren't you named like Tara or something? Shut up. I could imagine standing in front of that portrait with my brothers and having a really great conversation. We look nothing like LL Cool J, but LL Cool J looks a lot more familiar to us than all of the other portraits in the National Gallery. He is a familiar face. He is someone that we grew up with, that we knew from TV, movies, and music. While I appreciate and adore and admire Kehende Wiley for the work that he does for those who have never seen themselves in the walls of an art museum, I also deeply appreciate that his works are more legible and intelligible to the average person than some stuffy European paintings that may or may not be some of the greatest works of all time. Because what does that mean to four young kids growing up in Green Bay, Wisconsin? We didn't care who Rubens was. We didn't care who Jacques-Louis David was. We didn't care. We cared about people who were in our lives, even if that was through media and not through the diversity that we did not see in our everyday life. Those two facets of Kehende Wiley's work are what make him stand out in my mind as one of the most inclusive and strategic and talented artists of our day. He is one of those artists who can not only paint people into positions of power, but who can get people to go to an art museum who otherwise wouldn't, either because it never occurred to them or because they know it's a place of exclusion, as signaled by the lack of diversity on the walls. And that's what art history needs right now. That's what the world needs right now. We need to see different people in places of power. We need to allow people to occupy the spaces that have so often been denied to them. Because if you can see someone who looks like you in a position of power, then you can imagine that position for yourself. It's about ensuring that the right frameworks are in place so that people can succeed. 
And that first requires us to take a good hard look at the frameworks in place and do what we can to change them. Kehende Wiley does that by painting people of color into positions of power within his paintings, but also by making the art museum a more inclusive place for everyone. Be it a young boy born in LA who went to after-school arts programs, or a young white girl in Green Bay, Wisconsin, who just wanted to listen to music with her brothers. That is all I have for you on Kehende Wiley and his magnificent portraits of power. Well, it's not all I have, but at this point, my throat is raw. And tomorrow I will need to convince myself that I don't have coronavirus, that I've just been talking into a microphone for way too long. I am going to put a slew of things on the website this week, both that pertain to this episode and are related to it. I highly recommend watching the 2018 St. Louis Lecture, the unveiling of the Obama portrait, as well as listening to the podcast episodes by The Teray Show and the We Live Here podcast, which, again, is produced and funded by St. Louis Public Radio. So I, I especially support the We Live Here podcast. Apart from those media things, um, I wrote today's episode primarily with help from Kehende Wiley's own website, from essays online, and from museum content, all of which, again, will be on the website. I will also post links to where you can find resources pertaining to how you can support communities of color right now, be it through donating money or something like reading a book by an author within the Black community. All of that will be on the website. And I think I'm just going to leave it here for today. I am exhausted. Um, Gus is well. I am well. Uh, a new episode probably won't be up for a while. Not only do I have a chapter deadline, but I'm also moving. So expect an episode sometime in July. I make no promises. The usual credit goes to sounds.com, freemusicarchive.org for the royalty-free music, including Bach's Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 4 by Kevin McLeod and a song called Success Dreams. I'm not going to do my usual shtick today, although I do very much hope that you take the time to look at something beautiful. Today, instead, I hope that you take the time to read an article that you otherwise wouldn't, to listen to a podcast episode that I mentioned today, to donate $5 somewhere where it'll help. Take the time to do something constructive. I hope that you are all staying safe and healthy, especially those of you who are protesting and uh, parading, protesting and parading, for Pride Month. To close out the episode, I'm not going to do outro music today, but instead, I'm going to say some names. Philando Castile, Jonathan Farrell, Sander Bland, Eric Gardner, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray, Ahmaud Arbery, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and of course, many, many others. I'll talk to you next time. Bye.